is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. So welcome to another edition of the Enter Sad Men podcast. Episode number 39, would you believe? Um, amazing kind of how far we've come. There are now how many? 100 and count them, 14. 114 albums in the Hall of Fame. This is the only podcast that reviews, rates, and ranks the heavy metal and hard rock albums that you should own. Joined, as always, by Steve and Richard. Hello, chaps. How have you, how's your, your week been? Has it been good? Have you had a good week this week? Yes, very good. Thank you. Yeah, really good again. Three super albums we've listened to. Yeah, three three very varied albums, certainly. This is um, one of those shows where you just don't quite know what's going to happen. There's, and, and interestingly, we, we've not chatted an awful lot during the week about what possibly might happen, which is um, even more interesting. So, yeah, looking forward to this. Should we go? Richard, we put all of the numbers. We put the numbers into Tico, the Tico Torres Tombola of topics and themes. So the way this works is we have a list of ridiculously titled episodes, um, which are numbered one to however many. We put them into a randomizer that we've named Tico. And he spits out a number at the end of each show that tells us the theme that we are going to be dealing with the next week. And we choose an album each that tenuously or otherwise part of that theme. And last time out, Tico spat out colours. So, Richard, you took this rather literally, didn't you? I did. I thought about reds and blues and blacks and uh, all of the obvious, but I thought it was an opportunity to actually, yes, take it literally and take the word colour, living colour, and colour with a U, let's be clear. And, uh, yes, I I picked my favourite album of theirs, which is their second album out called Time's Up. And Richard will be going last this evening because we talk about these albums in the album of chronological release. Um, So uh, Time's Up came out, I think, in 1990, didn't it? The second album that we'll talk about this evening is Steve's, and I irritated you, Steve, didn't I? By, yeah, I mean, why don't, yeah, why don't you just why don't you just tell everyone what my album is? I mean, that, that, that that's fine by me. Mystic Mark, listeners might want to know, has has a has a, a, a an annoying knack of knowing sometimes where we're going with these things. We did a Donington episode weeks months back, um, and he knew exactly which albums me and Richard would pick. It's, it's such an arse. Anyway, <laughs> there's so many possible and there's so many possible colours that you know I could have gone. All your whites, your white snakes, your white lines, your great whites, your blackfoots, your black crows, your black sabbath. I looked at black and blue, and I did look at black and blue long and hard. I like black and blue. I haven't even gone red hot chili peppers. We haven't even gone, um, oh, pink Floyd. Well, I would never have picked pink Floyd. Deep purple. And we've not even talked about fucking back in black or something like that. But you knew, you just knew that I would go for Fashion by Passion by White Sister. And so I did. Yes. Yes, I was I was very smug, I have to say, very smug. And, well, I went um, for the, well, it's the second time this band has appeared uh, on the pod. It, the first time round, it was in episode nine, which was our Broxit episode. Um, but it's Thin Lizzy, Black Rose, that's what I chose. So uh, before we do anything else, let's have a quick canter through the best bits of the songs that we've been listening to over the course of the last seven days. Do, do 
So I hope you enjoyed those lovely snippets from the three that we're going to be reviewing in this episode. And we start with Mark's choice, Thin Lizzy, and their 1979 release, Black Rose. Mark. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, a bit more Thin Lizzy. Um, The more I listen to Thin Lizzy, the more I realise how much I I love them. uh, particularly, obviously, Phil Liner, and for reasons that I'm sure we'll come on to and talk about. Um, the, the big issue for me with this one was which album to choose. And I went for Black Rose, which, depending on who, you, which which kind of side of many fences you sit on with Thin Lizzy, could be their best album. There will be somebody else sitting listening to this thinking, no, 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 Black Rose is not their best album. Johnny the Fox is their best album. And there will be others who will be thinking, no, 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 no. Jailbreak is their best album. And there are some who like Renegade and some who like Chinatown. And you could pick pretty much any Thin Lizzy after their first two, any Thin Lizzy album after their first two, and you'd end up with a corking 40 minutes worth of, of listening. But um, obviously constrained slightly by um, by the theme, uh, I, I had to go for Black Rose because, uh, well, it was the only one with the colour in its title in the end, much so I might have wanted to do the others. Um, so, yeah, uh, this is Thin Lizzy sort of, coming out of the punk era, coming into their sort of real hard rock, their real hard rock phase. They've got, well, we'll come to the lineup in a minute, but, you know, Gary Moore is now back in the band, having left after 1974's Nightlife. Um, and he and Scott Gorham, one of the, the great guitar, lead guitar pairings, because they share lead guitar duties on the album. Um, so you've got Gary Moore, you've got, uh, Scott Gorham, you've got Brian Downey, who I think is just one of the most dependable and reliable drummers there is. And then, of course, you've got Lyman on bass and vocals. So let's just canter through the rest of the kind of the, the functionalities of the of the, this album. As I say, Thin Lizzy's Black Rose, released on April the 13th, 1979, you know, at the arse end of the 70s. 
um, recorded between December 78 and February of 79, released on three different labels around the world, Vertigo in the UK and the rest of the world, Mercury in Canada and Warner Brothers, strangely, um, in US, Mercury and Vertigo, obviously sister labels, transatlantically, Warner Brothers uh, and odd. I haven't got to the bottom of why they were signed to Warner Brothers rather than uh, Mercury in America, but there you go. Um, the album runs to 38, just under 39 minutes. It's produced by Tony Visconti, um, who I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit, and Thin Lizzy themselves, and uh, on With Love, which is the penultimate track on the album, uh, produced by Visconti and Phil Lynott, recorded at three different studios as well. Pathé Marconi EMI in Paris, Good Earth Studios in London, and Morgan Studios also in London. Um, so uh, other notable musicians who played on the album, well, Jimmy Bain played bass guitar on With Love. Not entirely sure why Phil Lynott didn't play bass guitar on With Love, but he didn't. Um, so Jimmy Bain, he's turned up in a few podcasts um, notably, of course, playing in Rainbow uh, on Rising. So, uh, you know, a man with um, with some chops. Um, but we've got a couple of well-known, well, they weren't, well, one of them wasn't at the time, we've got one very well-known uh, pop musician of the 80s, a pre-fame Huey Lewis of Huey Lewis in the News, plays harmonica on Sarah and With Love. Uh, Mark, a guy called Mark Nalsteef, plays drums on Sarah. Again, not sure why Brian Downey didn't do that. Uh, and Judy Zook, of all people, backing vocals arrangement on Sarah. Now, this album reached number two in the UK, spent 21 weeks on the chart, and it got to 81 in the Billboard 200. Um, no idea how long it spent on the chart there. It went gold in the United Kingdom, and it spawned half, half of this album uh, were singles. So waiting in order, waiting for an alibi, do anything you want to. Uh, sorry, um, four of them was singles. Waiting for an alibi, do anything you want to. Got to give it up. And Sarah's so nearly half. Well, it is more than half the album, isn't it? So that is Black Rose, Thin Lizzy. And I keep forgetting how good these albums are. And I said that, you know, I, I had all sorts of choices that I could have made for this uh, edition of the podcast. But I said, I think... Black Rose, uh, everything pales in the shadow of Black Rose. How did you two get on with it? Yeah, I mean, very well. Just, just a little bit of housework, first of all. Yeah. One other name check you haven't done of guys who were going to be big in the 80s who were involved in this record was, of course, Midyear, although apparently his role in, in a songwriting role was fairly negligible by his own admission. But anyway, and the other thing he said at the start was that um, you were constrained by... Um, Thin Lizzy's discography by what you could have actually chosen, but there was there of course is another album you could have chosen, isn't there? But I wouldn't have done. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, Blue Orphanage is the one that you're thinking about, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yeah. But um, anyway, which which is the other album, of course, that contains the song Sarah or a song called Sarah, which is on this, isn't it? Spooky stuff. Anyway. How do I get on with this? Oh, I loved it. I, I love any time. Are we Linnet or Liner? We, I, I'm sure we asked you this last time. We go Liner, don't we? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Okay. Yeah. Well, when we did Thunder and Lining, I, I'm a, I love Phil Liner. I love it when he bears his soul. And yet again, he's he's borne his soul for um for all to see in here. It's quite the soul. If you read the lyrics of this stuff, well, actually, you don't need to read them. You can just hear them. I mean, his diction and delivery is so good. I mean, you can, you, you know, you can just hear everything he sings and everything he's singing about. 
So you've got it all. You've got alcohol addiction. You've got gambling problems. You've got S&M. Um, you've got broken hearts, lost loves, lost dreams, um, ambition. Lack. It's just, it's, it's, just a, it's just a kaleidoscope of everything that, you know, I don't know whether it's just an incredible imagination or autobiographical, semi-autobiographical. It's almost certainly a combination of both. But lyrical input of, of this man is just, is just so talented. Said the same on Thunder and Lightning. Um, a rock and roll, I saw him called a rock and roll wild man with the soul of a poet. Um, and I think that's brilliant. He makes the album. There's no two ways about it. And you are right about the, the, that sort of twin guitar, thin as you sound, that we know and love. And, you know, the addition of more in this is brilliant. It, it's, it's a great sound. It's a sound we know very well. And I just I just thoroughly enjoyed listening to it. There's, I mean, there's two or three songs on here that any thin Lizzy fan, any hard rock fan would know anyway. I just think it's really good. It's it's of its time. As you say, it's definitely emerging from the punk scene. I didn't know it was their ninth album. Only ni- 1979, that's their ninth album. I didn't even know they'd been around that long. Yeah, good listen. Really good listen. Some fabulous stuff. There's no bad track on there, put it that way. And that's a, that's always a good starting point. Richard? Well, what more can I add? <laughs> yeah, th- this was this was the... Other album on my shortlist before I plumped for mine. So thoroughly happy that you chose it. Yeah, I've always loved it and uh, thoroughly enjoyed listening to it properly end-to-end again. Okay, so the album opens with um, Do Anything You Want To Do. And I bought this as a single when it was released in um, 79. On the album sleeve notes, it says um, that... It was released with just the two of us. Yeah, just the two of us on the B-side. And I must have had an EP version of it or something because I'm absolutely convinced that on the B-side of my version, which I will dig out because I've still got it somewhere, we had um, live versions, live live versions, presumably taken from Live and Dangerous, which had come out the year before, of Are You Ready and Bad Reputation. But anyway, that's by the by. We start, it starts off with these amazing sort of tribal drums, this sort of, you know, downy kind of setting the pace of the of the track. And then it's just got these amazing sort of verses that are just full of alliteration and rolling lyricism that only Lineup really seems able to do. It, nobody's quite replicated it. And it's just got this just gorgeous, relentless kind of driving vibe and, and groove behind it. Just absolutely love it. We've had um, an adamantine drum beat before, and I can't remember what song it was in the previous show, but th- that's how it starts, isn't it? That, that sort of tribal yeah. drum thing. And then, as you say, it kicks into all the verses. And, of course, it's lovely. It, it, it rolls along. It really does. And, yeah, I'm going to get my fanboyism out of the way now because Lionet is in that unique group of singers. A, you can hear what he's saying, and, and, he, and he sings beautifully. I love the tone of his voice. so rich. But he can sing it away from the tune. He can sing. He can sing it in his own. He can just sing away from the tune all the time. And, and you're always drawn. Very few singers can do that that well. Ian Gillan's one that jumps to mind straight away. And I think he's in that class. I would do. I think. Um, and his songwriting. It's interesting. None of them. They all. They're quite collaborative, aren't they? When it comes to songwriting, not when it comes to lyric writing. Apparently, no, no. That's my baby. And um, you know, he's, he's well. You know, bless him because he ain't with us anymore. But what a talented boy. A great song. It's a, it's a really good opener, certainly. Yeah, I think this is wonderful. I mean, everyone knows this song, but that thundering start. I mean, it, this, it is one of those iconic songs. That, that the, the, the drums 
uh, and the way the drums and the bass work together, when the twin guitars come over the top, you know what it is. You know what it is. His voice is so cool and silky on this, isn't it, as much as it is through the rest of the album. If you wanted any sort of notion that, or, or proof that this was a band that was emerging from uh, sort of the punk-saturated streets of London in 79, then Toughest Street in Town is it, because this is this is crossover punk rock. It's got great punchy, kind of punch-in-the-gut lyrics and deliveries, very staccato from Lineup. And, um, and it's, I mean, it's just a, it's, I mean, it's got it's got a hideous kind of subject matter, really. It's basically about people being killed on the street. But um, it's got a lovely little hook line. Can't help but sing it. And much, you know, it's it's a really really good song. It's probably one of the in a list. It's probably for me towards the end of the album. Apart from the fact that that alliteration again comes through, doesn't it? The, that um, that lyric about like a rat in a packet attacks from the back and it just yeah. keeps going and keeps going yeah, and keeps yeah. going. And it's beautiful. It's really well done. That's really interesting how you're going to think of the way you're going to list these tracks. Because I'll, I'll, I'll speak for me and I'll speak on behalf of Richard. We'll do it differently because I think there's a, I, I, I know his punkiness as well. I just think this is I just think this is genius. And also there's a there's a priceless bit where they go up half an octave before the final verse, then into that big chorus. Really clever song. It reminds me a bit of bad habits, I always thought, from from Thunder and Light. Just that sort of yeah. bullet tough beat. And it's um it's a proper yeah, it's a proper punk song in it that they've they've embroidered with the with the with the Lizzie sound. Have I second guessed you wrong, Rich? This is a sister song to Rat Trap by the Boomtown Rats. So this is for me. It's you know, and again he Mark said yeah, that whole set of rhymes about rat, pack, attack, back, crack, track, smack. Yeah. I love the solo. Yeah, it's a brilliant track too. Um, it's a, such a, these two tracks, what a wonderful start this album. Track three. It's almost like they've gone, right, okay, we've uh, we've proved that we can rock. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that now. So, yeah, we're just going to do, I don't know, a bit of funk. I think we'll, we'll have a bit of funk now. If there is ever a dirtier groove to a song, which is essentially about an abusive relationship, well, it's about a prostitute who gets beaten up, basically. It's got this kind of really gorgeous, beautiful funk groove and the and just the most sinister lyrics behind it. It's almost this, this sort of delicious kind of counterpoint, isn't it, to, to, the, to the, the actual music. The lyrics are an absolute counterpoint to the music. How how near how near the knuckle do they want to go with this? It's um, you know if you, if you don't know the 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 origin of this you know what he's trying to sing about it just it just comes across as dangerously seedy, doesn't it? Although I will tell you what, with Lynott singing it, it's also somehow slightly erotic. He's just got a, he's got an astonishing delivery. <laughs> you can't you know it's quite turned on, and it's um and it's that funky beat does help. There's there's, there's no two ways about it. Very seriously depraved, incredible subject matter. I, I, mean, I don't know, you know, any reaction or responses? Was it on the B side of a single or anything? Was it? I mean, it wouldn't have been a single, presumably. It was. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, I'll tell you actually, it was on. It was the B side to in America to do anything you want to. Okay. Yeah. Now I'd be fascinated to know how how well yeah if there was any sort of reaction to it, but. You know, this customer was shady. He kept a rubber hose. He liked to beat the ladies. There's nothing wrong with that, I suppose. And there's that little, there's that squeal. Yes, there is. 
There is. There really is something wrong with yeah. that. It's, um, it's a... It's a I mean, and I mean, you've got to judge it musically as well as subject, and it is very groovy, very groovy. That's, you know, that's fascinating. <laughs> Great song. The way he sings it, it, it's almost a little bit tongue in cheek, and it yeah. makes you feel bad for enjoying the song. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So uh, we go for, from the sort of left field to, well, one of Lizzie's probably best known tracks. So, what do we say about it? given that so many people know it so well. I mean, this this really shows his office bass playing. My goodness. I mean, he always pl- held it out high, didn't he? But it, 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 there's almost a f- funk sort of jazz style to the way. I mean, his bass is just carrying this uh, this entire song. And uh, it, again, his back line, the, the back line is are allowing those guitars to duel again over the top. Again, his singing, singing is effortless. The, the rhyming in the lyrics just makes you smile. Yeah, it's a, still, to this day, a superb song. Uh, this is the time that um, Lionel and um, Caroline Crowther, who he married, had a baby girl uh, named Sarah. And, oh, my God, if there was... If you wanted a, a song to be written about you, you'd want it to be this one, wouldn't you? Mm. It's just beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And we've all got daughters, and I was listening to it over the week, and I just thought everything he says about his daughter is how I feel about mine. He just captures that father of a daughter kind of vibe that I think most dads of daughters have. I don't know. Maybe you hate yours. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's – I echo everything you say. I Googled Sarah Lynott just to, um, yeah, see uh, – look. See some pictures, you know, see if there's any of her dad's features in her. And I read a lovely quote. It's very moving because she loves this song. She said, if I ever need to feel his love, it's in that song. She said, obviously, there are many times when I've listened to this song and it's broken me. Um, but there are many times it's filled me with love. It's nice to have a song written about you when he's not around to say the things you wanted him to say. You have that reassurance and love. It's so touching. And w- w- while I was doing that, what I did also realise is that, again, slightly off the piece here, she... There was a documentary, a rockumentary, out last year. I don't know whether either of you boys have seen it, called Songs for While I'm Away, about Phil Liner, mm. um, which has oh. been critically acclaimed, well, critically acclaimed in the, the quarters that we would regard as, you know, worth reading. Um, I, I, I don't know. I haven't seen it. I, I just think it's the sort of thing that would be um, probably well worth a watch. I don't know what it's about, but it's about Phil Liner. Um, and that'll be, you know, really interesting. I think this is lovely. It's beautiful. Made for Gary Moore. You're talking about Gary Moore. This song's made for Gary Moore. I think, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And yeah. it's almost sort of Van Morrison in style, isn't it? Almost a bit Latin as well in terms of the the style. Oh, yeah, and it's yeah, it's lovely. Side two opens up with a song that is a, purportedly to be about Lionel and Gorham's spiralling drug addiction, and this was kind of their the commitment they well Gorham did fulfil it in the end, but the the, the commitment that Lionel never quite could give to um, quitting uh, drugs and alcohol. Uh, it's called Gotta Give It Up, and it is just an absolute corker. It's got a brilliant riff. And, and again, it's his, bass, it's his bass that makes it. My God, his vocal is heartfelt. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's, it is, it's almost painful to listen to. I felt much the same when I listened to Heart Attack, which I know wasn't 
about anything in particular, but given that it was the last track on Thunder and Lightning before he died, not of a heart attack, but about, you know, tell my dad, tell my dad and tell my mum this, that and the other. We've got the same thing here going on and it's, you know, it's a pay end to the pain he's in and, and um, brave, brave boy writing this sort of stuff. Yeah. And then, to, as you say, to be able to shroud it in, in, in a really, really great song. I mean, that's, it's one thing writing the words, but, you know, between them, they've, they've you know, fused it all together into a, into a really, into a really great song. Yes, structurally, it is quite like uh, Alibi, isn't it, in, uh, in its style, I feel. But the belief and the feeling in what he's singing is really, you know, no quarter, he's really serious about the, the subject matter, but never quite made it. No. Um, and that plays out to uh, another song that betrays their kind of the, the punky roots of, uh, of New Wave of British Heavy Metal, which is uh, Get Out of Here. Um, and another masterclass in, in lyrics and delivery and how all of the words interplay with each other and are connected in some way. Just, I just think, brilliant, brilliant song. Again, yeah, this is the one that Majure uh, collaborated on, wasn't it? But yeah, I mean, it really it just just really charges along this. <laughs> As you say, that that com- is the conversational style of, 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 that he often does in, in, in these lyrics that I really love. I like I like this song. There's a kind of sixties prom dance feel buried underneath it. It's um, it's it's really it's a really interesting song. The Majure thing, interesting. I read a lovely quote from Majure. He's very fair. He says he he, he was given the songwriting credit. He confesses he actually did fuck all. He, just, he absolutely did. But he said it, was, it said so much. Phil had just taken him under his wing and it said so much about Linus' generosity of spirit. He was prepared to do it, knowing he'd get a cut of the money because he wasn't doing anything at the time. So, you know, another tick in the box of Linus, you know, one of the greatest world's, world's greatest human beings. Because, yeah, you had apparently done bugger all. So the penultimate uh, track on the album is With Love. Which is probably the most under well, I was going to say understated. We'll probably get to the the last track is both overstated and understated. But this is probably the the, the least remarkable song on the album. Still a good song. It's, it's quite chilled, isn't it? it? It gets heavier, but it's it's not a song I'll remember. Yeah, I, I don't agree with that at all. I, I think it's a beautifully paced song. It's it's got a whiskey in the jar kind of vibe to it, and. Uh, that they had to put Black Rose last. So I think it's a great song just to sort of set you up, relax you uh, before before the big ending. No, I, I, for me, this is one of the the best, better tracks on on the album. But let's talk about Black Rose because um, because this is kind of a mashup, isn't it? It's a mashup of traditional or mostly traditional. Um, Irish songs, folk songs largely, but also there are quite a few name checks for Thin Lizzy songs during it, which I, I think, again, is another really clever thing that he and Gary Moore did with this. Um, it also contains, um, I, I didn't write it down, but it, one of you will have done, the beautiful lyric of the, the, the lad called Cullen whose face was a little sullen. I can't remember the exact lyric. We'll get to it. But there's some beautiful phraseology in the in this track as well. But I have to say, uh, it's my least favourite track on the album. 
He was, of course, the Black Rose, wasn't he? He was. He was Russian Dub. He's he's had that inscription on his on his headstone, which I didn't I didn't know till till I, I researched it. Um, and I say Russian Dub very fast because I haven't got a clue if I said that correctly or not. But um, this doesn't seem too far away. Again, I, I mean, he, he clearly had a fatalistic streak in him. I mean, given all the damage he was doing to himself, and uh, the, the, as the albums progressed, and I was, as I always go back to Heart Attack again. Um, you know, it's just this, this is a, almost a cry for help in everything, in everything you hear him sing, and because we know how it worked out, you can, you, you kind of, you know, it's almost foreshadowing, isn't it? You work it back. And anyway, the other thing I like about this song is uh, the, 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 the mashup bit, it, which is quite interesting. I know it's not a Yuletide song per se, but there's a lovely jingly twinkly when it goes all Irish. There's a lovely sort of jingly twinkly feel to it. And this would sit ever so easily on our God Rest Ye Merry Sad Men Christmas playlist. I think it's I think it's got a lovely festive vibe to it. I know it hasn't, it shouldn't have, but it does. Oh, I think it's epic. I think it's a brilliant end to the, the album. And after so many albums we've reviewed, where when they put these epics on that are, you know, eight and nine and ten and eleven and whatever minutes, and we generally sit here and say, Oh, for Christ's sake. This shows what you can do in less than seven and create an absolute opus. And again, pats off to Gary Moore. He, he'd written all of these guitar parts, but then actually sat down with Gorham and taught him uh, some of the bits so that actually they could share lead guitar duties throughout this song, which I thought, hey, that's, that's cool. That's cool. Hats off to you. So there we go. That is Black Rose uh, from Thin Lizzy Boys. It's time for highs and lows. Steve? Well, I know my high because I remembered it from when I was marking this up, which is Toughest Street in Town. Uh, my low, I've given them the same score. I'll have to go for Black Rose, if I'm honest. So my lowest, uh, for all its uh, fun and games, S&M. And I still can't get past for a high the opener. Uh, do Anything is amongst the best songs they've ever recorded. Okay, well, I'm going with Steve. Um, Black Rose scores a, a solid seven and a half for me, but it is the lowest score on the board, or joint lowest, actually, but if I had to pick one, it would be that one. Uh, and my high, do you know what? I absolutely love doing anything you want to do. It, 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 it evokes memories in me of being sort of 14 in 1979. Um, but... I just, I can't get away from Alibi. I think waiting for an Alibi is just great. Um, so, yeah, there you go. That's it. Track album one, done and dusted, Thin Lizzy, Black Rose. It's time for us to move on. And we're fast-forwarding seven years to 1986 and White Sisters' Fashion by Passion, Steve. Opening album sleeve notes. Okay, yeah, White Sister, Fashion by Passion. Richard, you, you commented on WhatsApp, it's so very 80s. Didn't you? When you looked at the uh, <laughs> yeah. album cover, any 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 names on the model? Okay, allow me. Tracy Hilton is her name. She was um, she was the wife of Jim Davidson, or one of Jim Davidson's very many wives. Wife number three or four or seven, I don't know, but and a model. And there you go. That's um, that's Tracy Hilton, the uh, the front cover of uh, Fashion by Passion. Yeah, I like this album a lot. I don't think it'll take an eternity to discuss. <laughs> if I'm brutally honest, because I'm not sure there's an awful lot to say about what is um, essentially um, 
yeah, a, a perfectly, perfectly respectable slab of slightly funky, very synthy, um, occasionally rocky AOR. Um, and and I, I do like it. They're tight. They're a very tight band. Their songs are catchy. They've got a singer in Dennis Churchill Drees uh, with a voice to die for. Um, he is the band. Um, and I like it. I, I can't remember what alerted me to it. I, Almost certainly a Kerrang review. I don't know whether you bought it first, Mark, or whether we discussed it, but um, I've got it on vinyl, so I clearly got it at the time. And I still play it a lot. I know it's fairly throwaway, but I still play it a lot. Um, that's just how it is. Just a little bit of background, because trust me, they've only done two albums. We're not going to do the other one. Formed in 1980 in, um, in Burbank, California. Um, they were a four-piece originally, two of whom would leave before this their second album came out. Um, they were originally alerted to EMI based on some demos produced by Greg Jufra. Have I pronounced that right, Greg Jufra? You know what I mean. I've never, never known how to pronounce his name. I've always pronounced it Griffra, but okay. I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. No. Well, he's the dude anyway who um, who produced uh, one of their demos. EMI took a, took a look at it and liked it. And there's a lovely story about EMI wanted them to change their name on the grounds that there was another band out there at the time who were called Something Sister, and they were quite a big deal, to which they said, well, there's an awful lot of bands out there called White Something who are also a very big deal, so what are we going to do? And uh, anyway, EMI relented and said, all right, White Sister it is. So the first album came out, White Sisters. This is the second album, um, Fashion by Passion. Um, 1986, don't know exactly when, and I've got the album, didn't say on there. Um and it was released, they'd been binned by EMI by the time their second album dropped like hot rocks, as Churchill Drees called it. And this is out on the FM Revolver record label of Wolverhampton. <laughs> it's just, I, I, I've, I've tried, I've hunted high and low to find how this, how they wound up in the black country from LA. Um, anyway, crazy story. There's plenty of producers, Cliff Zellman, Joel Goldsmith, son of... Jerry Goldsmith of film write, film score writing fame, Star Trek or Star Wars or something like that, don't know. Um, Ken Topolsky and White Sister themselves. That so was recorded in a couple of places, Fidelity Studios um, and in, in L.A., 36 minutes long. As I say, there were a three-piece by this stage, as in when they weren't in the studio. Dennis Churchill Drees on vocals, Richard Wright on drums, and a guitarist by the name of Rick Chaddock, who turns up in one or two tracks and nowhere near enough. Um, this is a seriously under-guitared album. Um, and the guest musician was Joel Goldsmith himself, the producer who played keyboards, and therefore is quite a big deal in this. Um, yeah, nine tracks, five and four, the obligatory murder of a Beatles song, um, which is pretty awful. But other than that, as I say, I've just always liked it. I've just and and I still play it now a lot. So this has taken no effort at all this week. I still play it a lot, and it's just one of those albums that is just such an easy listen. And that's I think that's a good thing. What do you boys think? This is this is just sort of classic, sort of slightly harder AOR, isn't it? Around the time, um, it, well, we'll get onto the tracks themselves. But I had to get myself into my sort of you know Survivor sort of foreigner mode of of listening. And uh, yeah, and then I, I enjoyed yeah, enjoyed some parts of it. Some other parts, not so sure about, but it's, uh, yeah, enjoyed discovering it. 
So I, I, I saw a review that described White Sister as, and I quote, one of the top five AOR bands in the world, sadly missed, which is hyperbole of the highest order, frankly, because they're not one of the best five band, five AOR bands in the world. Um, they are sadly missed, though. Um, I, I'm curious, Steve. I, I, I think, I may be mistaken, but I think I heard you say they only released two albums and we're not, we won't be doing the other one. Um, I prefer their debut to this. And I, I think they're another one of these bands who should have been big. They should have been really, really big, and they weren't. And, you know, they the, the next album could well turn up on the on the Shot Down in Flames, the next Shot Down in Flames episode. Um, I bought the debut album in Shades, one of my many sorties into um, Soho um, back in the sort of early 80s, uh, early to mid 80s. And I was rifling through the record bins and I, I don't know why I bought it, because it is possibly the worst album cover in the world, the, the debut album. But that's how I got into them. And then obviously I had to go out and buy the second one because the first one was so good. I, I think the problem that White Sister has, and I'm sure we'll come on to the, the problem they had, is they just weren't consistent enough. They didn't really know what they wanted to be. They didn't know whether they wanted to be a hard rock band or whether they wanted to be a pop band or whether they wanted to be an AOR band. And and in that lies absolute ruin. And the evidence is all there, particularly in this album, where they seem to you know pinball from one thing to another without really having... I mean, we, we've just talked about an album where it was incredibly varied, the, the musical kind of styles that Thin Lizzy incorporated on Black Rose, but there always seemed to be a sense of purpose to it. There always seemed to be a sense of narrative behind where the record was going, which you just, just don't get with this album. And like Richard, I, I really like this album. There are some absolute high points on it, and there's some stuff that isn't particularly high points. I like some bit less than I like the rest of it. Okay. So let's give it a listen. And um, it starts, as I say, nine tracker, five on uh, side one and four on side two. And it, our half hour or so of AOR Gold kicks off um, with a track called A Place in the Heart. There's no hiding place here. You've got, you've got, you've got synths straight up. And that's not going to, that's not going to change throughout this album. You need a good singer to pull this sort of shit off. And, white sister have one in in churchill drees um it's pretty straightforward stuff musically this i love the beats i think it's nice and catchy i think it's got a great chorus some of their choruses are really floppy later on this is a good one quite asia it's a it's a signpost as to as to what's to come you're hoping and unfortunately it doesn't quite fill the brief because this is good this is really good well th- this this picks up from the debut doesn't it, it it's kind of you know, normal services resumed, and and you're going brilliant because that's what yeah. I bought the album for. It's got a lovely riff that runs down the back of it, and as you say, Dennis Churchill Drees is is a, I think, a great singer. My issue with 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 this album, and it was the same with the debut, is is the 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 production sounds sludgy. It always did. So there's too much bass in it for me. I think with more treble and a crisper production, this would sound so much better and to bring the guitars up in the mix. But yeah, I, I love this song. 
that's just the uber negative in this is the guitar and the, 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 the absence of any guitar, one or two tracks. But it's just so low. It's just so synthed out um, from the guy who's not even in the, uh, you know, full time member of the bloody band. And he's dominating it with his with his keyboard work and um, and the vocals. But yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, I'm with you. I think it's a fantastic start. It's a good start to the album. I like it. I like the vocal harmonies. I mean, the guitar's there. I think it's got a really good guitar solo. Uh, and I really, really like the ending, how, how, how this first song ends. Again, production-wise, it's it's sounding okay. It's just that in so many other songs, the guitars just disappear entirely. So, yeah, I was encouraged after I'd heard this first track. Um, a Place in the Heart goes into the title track, Fashion by Passion. And, well, here's your variety. Straight away, this opener makes way for something that has more than several nods to pop music fads at the time. <laughs> it's got a bit of a new romantic feel. It's a bit Thompson Twins and it's a bit shit, if I'm honest. It's the, the number of times I've listened to this and this is one of your, this is one of your needles off jobs and I don't do it very often. But. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating, isn't it? it it like the al- the album cover. It is so eighties that uh, at the time I'm sure sounded incredibly modern and cutting edge, and these days just <laughs> puts this so far in the past. I'm half expecting Janet Jackson to turn up and start singing "What Have You Done for Me Lately." Exactly the same year, both released in '86, and you never see them in the same room together. I don't lift the needle. I quite like it for what it is. If you take it in isolation, listen to it on its merits, I've got no problem with it. As part of this album, it, it's, a, it's a niffy choice. Well, the only reason you wouldn't lift the needle is because then you might not be able to start it correctly for track three, which is the track of the album, as far as I'm concerned, which is Dancing on Midnight. And you just would not want to miss the start of this. You wouldn't want to miss any of it, any of the four-odd minutes of it. This is... White Sister at their very best. More up-tempo. Churchill Tree's going a little bit more Dave Menachetti. I just love the melody in this. Just so, so infectious in a good way. Yeah, it's much more like it, isn't it? I just wish the, so much, the rest of the album was like this. Yeah. Mix-wise, they've got the synths low and much, much lower in here where they should be. You can hear the guitar and how good it is. Some really good vocal hooks and harmonies in it as well. I agree with you, Steve. Uh, track of the album for me too i love it it's, it's a really really good song yes well save me tonight won't save um fashion by passion which is um track four this is one of three songs on here co-written by gary brandon who was the original singer and keyboard player who left who was on the first album left before they started recording this it's a it's a big old sprawler i just think it could have been a bit bigger i i, re- I think this is a top ballad i really do I, when I first listened to it this week, I thought, oh, God, yes, save me tonight. That's just, that's a bit too saccharine. But actually, it's, it, it has clawed its way up. It, it's probably my it, it's probably my third or fourth favourite song on the album. I think it's really good. Yeah. Richard thinks it's awful, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I can only presume that they uh, got them to do this for Fright Night because they couldn't afford Michael Bolton. Because... Uh, <laughs> He sounds exactly like him at the beginning. Um, yes. And whilst, I don't know, it, there are bits where it gets a bit better. No. No, not for me, I'm afraid. No. 
But having said that, it's still better than what's to come, which is side one closer, which is Ticket to Ride, Lennon McCartney, Beatles song, and a really not very good Beatles cover. They've just completely lost the soul of it. They've beefed it up and gone a bit synthier and heavier, but they've just lost the spirit of the song completely. This is just nothing. It's really, uh, you know, it's just not good. Why do they do it? Why do bands cover the Beatles? I don't get it. If you're going to cover the Beatles, cover something that isn't really, really well known for a start because it's safer. But there's nowhere to hide with this. This is just dreadful. I don't think they murder it. They just don't do anything with it. After that hatchet job, we get um, we we, we flip the we flip the vinyl to side two and April. Uh, this is I'm guessing Mark the other song. I like April a lot. I think it's a kind of really perfect blend of of heavy and and AOR synthy, massively synthy. Of course, it's, that's almost a given. Thumping drum beat. Churchill Dreiser is is best. <sighs> How many times do I say it? Chorus is a little weak. There's a terrible segue. There's an absolutely shocking bridge from the first chorus into the second. But I mean, it's like a mistake. Really good song. Really good start to, to side two. And I don't even mind the synths. They're quite high up in the mix, but they kind of complement it. And in, in previous tracks, they've kind of big footed all over it, all over the guitar. But on this, it actually, I think, complements it a bit. So yeah, good, good opening to side two. And you kind of, you're quite relieved that they've got back to this, really, aren't you? Which is a shame because you're sort of left slightly disappointed by the rest of the uh, rest of the side. But anyway, yeah, we have peaked. Yeah, it it chugs along. It's it's not bad. The one I the one thing I found was the guitar solo is so messy. It sounds like he's making it up as he goes along, which is probably not very far from the truth. Okay, so uh, track two anyway is called um, "Until It Hurts." Uh, which is this does get have a big guitar solo in it, um, which I think deserves a round of applause because it's one, one of the best. And I, I quite like this. I must admit, I, there's, there's nothing wrong with this. It's not the first chorus that could have been a, a lot beefier. Um, it's not a ballad as such, um, but it's a nice build up from a slow start. It's a, again a nice tune running through it, and that is a, that is a theme on this album. There's some there's some good melodies and decent hooks and yeah this is fine like this this held a lot of promise to start with i, I really like the build through the verse uh, but then the chorus was a bit of a disappointment <laughs> yeah 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 it really is it really is um and the the last two tracks on the album are called troubleshooter and lonely teardrops which were both written by um three members of angel who were Jufra's band or whatever his name is fergie Fredrickson. Punky Meadows and Ricky Phillips. So you've got two different songwriters here, but ultimately you're getting very much the same sound. Um, I'm actually getting quite a lot of wine and tea here, or bags of Menachetti anyway, in, in Churchill Drees. Um, this is in Troubleshooter. Yeah. Do you know what? This is just kind of... I mean, I'm struggling, really. It's, it's a kind of, kind of average song. There's a nice bit of sax in at the end, just to add a bit of variety. Um, but other than that, it just it just bops along at a at a pop chart pace, and it's it's okay. If you really listen hard, there's actually a pretty good guitar riff down there. But firstly, it's drowned out by the bass, and then it's annihilated by the keyboards. In the analogy, 
it's yeah, it on the battlefield. It's been shot down once. It's managed to haul itself back up, and then it gets taken out by artillery fire. You know, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> completely agree. And we wrap it all up with uh, lonely teardrops. And you may be surprised to know that it's a mid-paced, synth-soaked, vocally excellent, shiny piece of AOR. So pretty much everything that we've had thus far, that's what this is. That's what this album is. And again, I've got okay. It's okay. I'm, really? I'm not. I've got fucking awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a sister track to the title track, isn't it? It's back to that 80s pop. I mean, it's more upbeat. Vocals are okay. It does kind of shape up for a nice big finish and then just fades out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, if they could write a chorus, if they could put some beef in this stuff. But um, anyway, listen, it, it's been a, as ever, it's been a, it's been a fun listen all week. Um, better do some highs and lows. Uh, Mark? Uh, so my highs are April and Dancing on Midnight and pushed to choose one of them would be Dancing on Midnight and Lonely Teardrops without a shadow of a doubt by a very long distance is the lonely. <laughs> okay, Rich? Uh yeah, Michael Bolton is my low. Uh, so tonight, Dancing of Midnight is my high. Yeah, well, it's a clean sweep for that. And our title track for me is um, is, is is the weak link. Uh, and it is a weak link. Um, so there you go. That's uh, that's White Sister. That's Fashion by Passion. That's album two of the three that we're doing on episode 39. Uh, one, two down, one to go. And we've certainly saved, I was going to say the best till last, we've saved the most complex till last of that. There's no two ways about it. Um, and this is uh, Living Colour. Rich, talk us through it. Opening album sleeve notes. Yes, so we're in 1990, uh, and uh, I've picked uh, Living Colour's second album, uh, Time's Up. So Living Colour, yeah, they were formed in New York in 1984. Um, Interesting question, you know, why colour with a U? Well, it's because Vernon Reid, who formed Living Colour, is British, British guitarist. And after playing various jazz and funk and punk um, with various members in 1986, they sort of formed the lineup that would record their first two albums. Uh, lineup being Corey Glover on vocals and occasional guitars, Vernon Reed on guitars, the brilliantly named Muzz Skillings on bass, and uh, Will Calhoun on drums. Um, released their debut in 1988, and then after touring with, amongst others, Rolling Stones and and uh, People like that. They uh, entered the studio in 1989 to record this, their their second album. Some bits and pieces about it. Uh, it is quite long. Yeah, Steve and Mark are going to enjoy after their little snippets of an album under 40 minutes. This one's nearly approaching an hour. It was released uh, on the Epic record label on August the 28th, 1990. Uh, recorded in uh, a couple of studios in California, A&M in Hollywood and RPM in Los Angeles. Huge list of additional musicians and guests and everything like that. But I mean, a few that I can mention are Mick Jagger, Little Richard and uh, Queen Latifah. Chart-wise, it did okay. Uh, in the UK, it reached number 20 and it got to 13 uh, in, in the US. And track-wise... 
Well, there are 15, count them, 15 tracks, three of which, though, are some little interludes. So 12 actual proper pieces of music that we'll be reviewing tonight. It's not one that you can really put on in the background. It is a challenging, uh, but I think it's a really important album. It's one of my favourites. I still, I still really like it. And I think it's unique. I really think it's a, a unique set of music. Well, first things first, the, the, the subject matter, 30 years is a snapshot in, in terms of life cycle. I'm not surprised that anything they're singing about there is still relevant today. Nothing changes in society. It hasn't done for thousands of years. I tell you what, I'm glad that two of our three albums were this week were by uh, were Black Rose and Fashion by Passion. You stick them on once, you know what you got. Job done. Because that's given me plenty of time <laughs> to try and get my head around this and figure it out. Time well spent, I hasten to add. A very enjoyable listen in, in so many ways. Um, untold respect for Vernon Reid, who, who seems to write most of these songs. I mean... You know, wow, what a talented boy. You talk about all the, all the influences. It's, there's an awful lot of experimentation going on here in soundscapes and what's possible, the fusion of different styles, the fusion of different instruments. It's, it's a kaleidoscope of, of, of possibilities. What this means for me, there's an awful lot of really good things on here, an awful lot of really good – you can sell that I'm coming to a bus, aren't you? There's an awful lot of really good things on here. And one or two tracks that I just simply – just don't don't talk to me. They simply do not talk to me at all, and and they don't talk to me, not in a primitive headbanger state, because I think I'm a little bit more sophisticated than that. They just don't talk to me. And one of them, for example, Elvis is dead, still contains some to die for moments within it. It just doesn't talk to me at all. Within that track and within other tracks, there's some great stuff, some really great stuff, and it's an incredibly varied piece of work. The scope of this project far too long by the way you, you alluded to that far too long the scope of this project there's no limit to their ambition and, and you can only applaud them for what they're trying to do but because because it's so eclectic it can get quite muddled <laughs> i'm not quite sure how i follow that other than to say i mean first things before we get into into what i think of the album in a jethro toll moment this this was uh, given the Grammy for Best Hard Rock Performance. I mean, that's just oh, yeah. nonsense. In the same way that Jethro Tull getting the same um, the same Grammy was a nonsense. So um, this is not a hard rock record. It, it might be heavier than the first one, but it's not a hard rock record. It is, as Steve says, a wonderfully eclectic, thought-provoking, musically hugely accomplished piece of work the the question i always ask myself every album that we listen to for this is would i play it again in in its entirety and the answer is no i wouldn't i wouldn't play it in its entirety there's too much on it that i can't process my ears are just not they don't work that way so there's there's too much do i admire those those bits of work that i i don't get on with absolutely because there's absolutely no doubt in the talent of this man that there's a bit of me that just thinks yeah in terms of the style just, just fucking pick one, you know, please, because because it just it wrecks my brain having to kind of suddenly readjust myself to you know to go from I mean even in the opening four tracks to to just to kind of oh my god right okay we're going there now now we're going here it it's got some some lovely there are some absolutely wonderful moments in it there's there's um, 
there's the 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 opening to Love Is It's Ugly Head is beautiful. It's like a 1940s um, film score. It's absolutely gorgeous. There are, there are just moments where you go, this is just perfect. And then, as Steve says, there's stuff where the, I mean, Elvis is dead. We'll get on to talk about it. I mean, I won't be talking about it for very long because it's just nonsense, as far as I'm concerned. I, there was a record, there was a track I was going to skip. It was that one, and um, because I just don't, I, I think it's utterly pointless. But it doesn't speak to me, so that's fine. But the rest of them, I get on with. I, I really like. I really like them. I just find that constant readjustment of my ears be really really tiring <laughs> but then i'm old and i get tired easily um but do i think it's a great album yeah i do have i enjoyed listening to it absolutely and i didn't expect to and i always like it when that happens. the album starts with the title track and uh, some sort of pink floyd time kind of clocks and alarms is it then going to break into some nice little drumming and uh, gentle atmospheric keyboards bollocks is it? <laughs> it it goes into some kind of proto thrash jazz <laughs> charging set of riffs uh, like almost i mean i suppose it is like a mad march hair this 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 album starts but then into a great groove and well we'll come back to the production but you can certainly hear everything going on and just what amazing musicians these three guys are and Corey Glover's passion over the top in terms of his vocals. This is just so manic, so heavy, so punky, you know, and that screaming guitar. So they bring it back midway through a little bit. Um, but this is, yeah, this is seriously mixed up heavy shit. And I love it. I think it's, I think it's, it's right up my avenue. It's just so daring. It's, it's daring with volume. It's daring with, with possibilities. It's thrashy, but they've taken it to a very, a really different level. You know, it's really ingenious what they've tried to do with a kind of music that I really like. And I was not expecting it. I was just not expecting it. I think it's a great song. There are two songs on this album that I don't get on with. Elvis is Dead is one of them. This is the other one. When this came on, I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, is this going to be 15 tracks of this? For me, with my, you know, my my kind of very shallow ears, this is just a fucking mess, and it's not a mess. I, I understand it's not a mess, but you know, musically, it's very deliberate. It's all very well planned, but it's a mess in my ears, and and I can't deal with it. Well, if you you get through that, you then have a one of the first of the interludes, and it really is a prelude to the the second track or track three on the album, but the second track, proper track that we're going to review, written by uh, Will Calhoun, the drummer, uh, and uh, that's called Pride. And it contains, for me, I, I disagree with Mark about this not being hard rock, because there's some elements on this where they kick out some absolutely brilliant riffs, and uh, this is one of them. Absolutely superb groove. And Will Calhoun's drumming. Yeah, one of my favourites, certainly one of the drummers, I just think, oh, God, I wish I could do what you do. It's, it, it's superb. Uh, but also the brilliant balance between the bass and the guitar and the drums. It, it would have been far more thought-provoking coming from, a, coming from a black band doing so many different things, I would imagine. I mean, it, it just feels different straight away. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, politically, 
I'd far rather listen to this, mm. say, than Rage Against the Machine. You know, they're both very political animals. Far more musicality in what this lot are doing. I like. I, I quite like this. This, this. this is kind of heavy funk, isn't it? And it, and it, which is an underlying theme throughout this album, far more than the rock element of it. And I don't mind this at all. I think it's. I think it's. Um, yeah, a really nice track. Yeah, I'll give you. I'll give you. I, I really like this. I really like this. Mm-hmm. And for me, this is where the album starts. Yeah, and it carries on with track four, um, the third of the full-on tracks we're reviewing, uh, which is one of the singles, uh, did pretty well, uh, and that is Love Rears Its Ugly Head. So as Mark said earlier, this beautiful sort of cinematic opening then just settles down into one of the best slow funk rock grooves you're ever likely to hear wonderful interplay, little breaks, little steps, um, and the wonderful idea of being on the wrong end of a deeply loving woman. I think it's just brilliant. It's one of my favourite tracks on the album. It's so counterintuitive. You know, so much of what we listen to is about domination and power. Um, and actually, this is, a, this is just a love song. And I just think it's, it's beautifully constructed. It's got, a, you know a lovely dirty groove to it and and it's 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 kind of um it's quite pithy as well which i i quite like i think it shows their sense of humor and so yeah good track okay so yeah you're three tracks in where's it gonna go next well it's gonna go a bit faster uh, so track five is uh, the new Jack theme, which I think, Steve, again, back to you know, real some punk influences. I mean, this is just much more sort of straight ahead. Uh, well, at least for a while, before it disappears into almost a samba about two-thirds the yeah. way through. But, yes, it, it kicks off at a at a hell of a lick. Yeah, it, it's um, – I, I, I like this not as much as the couple that preceded it. Yeah, this is, see, this is, one of, this is one of those tracks that kind of slightly confuses me a bit. Um, any, any track that starts off with a kind of armoured saint riff is absolutely fine by me, all for it. But you're right, it doesn't go there. And and, and I, I, I don't mind, I really don't mind bands doing what they want to do and exploring and, and going off in different avenues. But if it doesn't work, for me, it doesn't work. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. And, um, and I'm not getting here in this song a tune that's, I'm just particularly fussed about. It's a real patchwork of stuff from, from all the way through. I'm getting that funky beat and the hard rock mix. I, I, I get all that. In, in its base form, there's so much else going on. Um, some work, some doesn't on this track, and yeah, it's it's okay. It, it, it's it's one that leaves me a little bit cold. I'm honest. It's the track that woke me up. I think they can rock because this is track two of three that I think absolutely definitely are. You know, a hard rock track. Um, apart from the sound of it towards the end of it. But um, no, I really like this. I, I, I love the riff. I love the way it kind of, I love the way that it, it it disassembles itself throughout it and then kind of builds itself back up. I think it's really clever. And and I don't mind those kind of breaks and false starts and what have you that, that are going on. And I think it just makes it more interesting. So no, big fan of this. That's that's really that's so interesting. Can you ask that's been cross examined in a court of law? In a court of law, the jury just be off. The jury say, "Fuck this! I haven't got a clue what's going on." <laughs> your, dis, your disassembly is my mess. Yeah. It's just bizarre. 
are in there. But. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to have heard the discussions in the studio when they were putting some of this stuff together. Um, right, well, let's let's move it on uh, to uh, to track six and and another shift, uh, an opening of uh, recording kids playing on a street, sort of set the scene, and then and then it settles down into what is quite a nice sort of chuggy, poppy groove, a song about essentially police brutality. You can't disassociate yourself from what is a really powerful political story, this. I mean, there's no two ways about it. And allied to that, what a fantastic song, by the way. Um, Musically, great chorus, bit funky, but not really, actually quite heavy. I, I, I think this is magnificent. Whereas Rage Against the Machine are angry about stuff like this, there's almost a there's a sense of shame, isn't there? They're projecting shame and resignation and disappointment and at the state of the nation, at the state of society. And I think it's it's really effective. I think it's a really effective way of kind of getting over a message that, as you said, Richard, at the beginning is as relevant today. Um, as it was 30 years ago when they made this. So we follow the wonderful uh, Someone Like You with what will be uh, Stephen Mark's top-scoring track. Good old Elvis is dead. Very fast funk, really. I'm I'm with you guys of, of all of the songs on the album. It doesn't do that much for me. I think, you know, what what's the point of it? I, I'm presuming it's around the black man talk teaching Elvis how to sing. I read an interview that said it was about, um, it was taking the piss effectively out of Elvis fan children who just can't stop going on about the bugger. And it's just, you know, Elvis is dead for fuck's sake, all right? He's dead. Just move on. Yeah, I mean, and uh, that aside, you you judge it on its musical merits and it doesn't have many. There's a nice little, it's just, it's just, just gone above average thanks to Maceo Parker's sax playing at the end that's the only redeeming feature as far as i'm good but within it there's some interesting things you know it's still it's not it's not dead in the water song by any stretch but as an, as an overall feel it's it just leaves me a bit cold so the, the the one thing that i would say about this um is that it's got um it's got a lot of kind of intertextuality in it so just going through it obviously the, there's that they're kind of Talking about the fact that there were loads of tabloids at the time that were that were you know, claiming that Elvis had been spotted in a you know, supermarket on the moon, wherever it happens. I heard that when he died, he was sitting on his throne. And obviously, that's a play on the fact that he's the king, but he died on the toilet, um, which which I think is quite clever. Now you dwell forever in that heartbreak hotel, which he talks about the the fans who are left because heartbreak hotel was where people went to live when they'd been burned by the flame of love, wasn't it? And and so that's where now Elvis fans live because they've been burned by the flame of love. I mean, it's a very clever song, but I just don't like it musically. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah, well, let's move it on to track eight then of Time's Up by Living Colour. And this was the first single off of the album. Uh, and I remember hearing this and immediately thought, right, that's it. And I went and bought the album. I think it's just got an absolutely colossal riff. Again, it's a really sort of heavy sort of funk rock they've, they've got throughout this album. 
but then it breaks into this lovely, almost airy light lightness of a of a chorus. And it's one of those songs I still will just move around the house to, even to this day. Um, never tire of it. Oh, best song on the album. Absolutely the best song on the album. It's just genius. Any song that contains the word televanger hypnotism is a great song anyway. But this is, and there's a definite, this is, there's plenty of faith and more fear in that chorus. I love this so much. It's such a great song. What I love, well, again, there's so much to it. They almost got a little bit ELO, discovery style ELO after one of the one of the breakdowns, and then there's a it comes out into a funky beat, and then after about three minutes, we're back to that riff, which occurs again later. It's a great riff, and there's almost a kind of Aerosmith finish that's sort of Hearts Done Time finish as well. It's just a beast, a real beast. It's just a really really infectious song. It's a fantastic song and heavy enough for me. Great chorus, great song. That actually is side one, including the little uh, interludes, uh, eight, eight tracks on side one. So let's flip it over, uh, and we've got 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15 on side two. And the first track on side two is Information Overload, uh, and it starts with Vernon Reed, I think, trying to uh, imitate one of the old dial-up modems which you'll find, people will find incredibly clever or just fucking annoying, depending on what school they're from. But then it eventually gets there and uh, goes into another fantastic riff. For me, this song is two halves, really, because I really do enjoy the the, you know, the first half and the, the, the main riffs and, and, and choruses. But in the second half... Uh, the real improvised jazz guitar solo is one of those parts on this album that, no, it just goes beyond me, I'm afraid. He loses it. He loses it, definitely, doesn't he? That that back end, that's just a crazy, crazy outro. Um, yeah, no, I love that kind of Metallica riff. Just a stonker. But yeah, I, I absolutely agree with what you say, Rich. It's... Um, it, it sounds like they're, they're almost improvising as well towards the end, and then that solo, woof. Yeah, too much for me. I, I'll revise my assessment. There are five tracks on this album that are hard rock tracks, actually. I was being slightly mean by saying it was three. There are five. This is another one. I, I find it slightly irritating just because of the repetition. And and to be honest, I've kind of switched off by the time we get to the cat- catastrophe at the end of it. But anyway. Well, after the confusion of that guitar solo, they just bring us down a little again and... We go into, I don't know, it's this very almost bluesy, soul-y, slow sort of shuffle of a song uh, called Undercover of Darkness. Um, I believe at the time, you know, with AIDS around and everything, this was all around uh, safe sex and, uh, and looking after each other in bed. It's got a bass line to die for. It's just brilliant, Muskilly's bass line on this. Uh, we've got a Queen Latifah rap in the middle, urging us all to uh, be be good girls and boys. And yeah, it's um, for me enjoyable. Uh, I like it not as much as others on the album, uh, but it's perfectly pleasant. Would I rather listen to Led Zeppelin or Level Forty Two <laughs> Led Zeppelin every day of the week? Thanks very much. I don't really. I I'm, I feel just slightly ambivalent about it. Really, there were times this week when I was listening to this and it fitted what I was doing and. I really enjoyed it. And then there were times when I was doing other things and I'm just like, I could just move it on. 
and um yeah i i find the the sort of chorus if that's the correct way to describe it i find that to be um slightly difficult to listen to but it's all right it's all right okay so undercover darkness is followed by another very weird uh, interlude called ology and then that moves straight into track 12 which is fight the fight starts with a lot more guitar whittling from from vernon you, i think you can hear him trying to be a little eddie van halen in it i mean eddie van halen and Jimi hendrix were his two heroes and yeah, this is a weird one for me because it, it it, it does start to build, but for me, it builds into a bit of a mess and, and doesn't really go anywhere. I do like the, the drum beat, but I've not really got much else to say about it. Um, Richard, I'm so with you. This could have been so much better. The start of this song, when he's doing his Van Halen bit, and then it just that little build, this could have been, this is the bedrock for a really, really good track. And it doesn't go there. It just doesn't go there. It's just... I was so ready to like this, especially having just sat through Undercover of Darkness. And and there's a, you know, there's a couple of bangers to come. But there's so much potential here. But that's living colour in a nutshell. That is living colour, you know. They, they give us with one and take us with another. It's, you just don't quite know what you're going to get. You really don't. And um, the potential in this song just wasn't realised. No, it's all right. It's, it's all right. It, that I, I got a bit of an overdose of 1984 um, at the yeah. beginning of it, but um, yeah, it's okay. I think I think it's what I would say about it is that it strays into the realms of anonymity at times, and I think that's that's where you're right. It could have been so much more, but where it's good, I think it's quite good, and I certainly wouldn't be. I wasn't itching to move this on. Okay, well let's. Let's move it on anyway, and uh, we go to another interlude, which is a little beatbox thing called Tag Team Partners. But let's get on to the main event, uh, which for me is certainly the most beautiful song they ever wrote. And in my view, one of the most beautiful songs ever written. This is on so many of my playlists. Again, what a surprise. It's the uh, Latin soul and the elements of African Caribbean in it. A uh, beautiful bass line, restrained guitar, and uh, just some lovely lyrics. This is called Solace of You. It's lovely, isn't it? I mean, I'm a, I'm a massive Paul Simon fan, and I'm a massive Peter Gabriel fan, and therefore I'm a massive Solace of You fan. I just think it's a, it's a real reprieve from the chaos that's <laughs> befallen us. It's just a beautiful piece, really gentle piece of funk rock with a little bit of sort of, you know, Calypso beat in there. I think it's decorated with loads of little nice touches, which they do do when they do do them well. And when they do it like this, and you know, it's just us, isn't it? They may just say, you know, we'll, you know, they prefer some other stuff. I think this is lovely. Just a really, really lovely piece of work. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's full of hope and it's heartfelt and it's got that, as you say, Steve, that lovely Calypso thing running through it. And the, and the, the bridge is just, Gorgeous, I think, and you know, I, I mean, I've never been to the Caribbean, but I, I, I can imagine lying on a beach in the Caribbean, listening to this, and feeling well at home. Actually, it's those those little guitar motifs that run through it that that just make it for me. I just think, uh, and like you, it's gone on a couple of my uh, players as well. And the album 
all of 58 odd minutes of it ends with uh, this is the life so and i don't know follows a fairly you know a, a regular theme of some weird noises eventually into a, a, another great riff I, I do feel at times that it's a bit of a pedestrian ending for them compared to the the rest of the album but um it's a it's a it's a decent sign off well it's interesting it's, it's interesting that you say it's pedestrian because that's not what you're expecting. It's over six minutes long, isn't it? Is it six and a half minutes long or something? So personally, I'm immediately concerned that at some point they're going to break off into, you know, Chopin or pop chocolate or something. You just don't know where they're going to go, you know, because um, that's plenty of time. Yeah, they don't need long. That's plenty of time for them to go ballistic. But it's also kind of real old school chug to it, early doors, and it's proper heavy with a kind of to die for chorus. I really like it. First two verses of this song are fantastic, and then it, it just lose. Yes, it's six and a half minutes long. They've got plenty of time to lose their way, and they do um, with a really sort of discordant guitar solo. It just takes the sheen, mm. I think, of what of what could be a really good number. I wasn't expecting this at the end of the album, but I think it's a really effective sonically. I think it's a really effective track, and I I really like the chorus. I think it's um, yeah. It really lifts the the tune, doesn't it? It's no. I, I really like this. This this would be up in my sort of top three or four tracks on the album. There we go. That's uh, Living Colours. Time's up. So let's have some highs and lows, gents. Uh, yeah, I'll have to have a scroll through here. Well, I know what the favourite is. That's tight, which is um, genius. The, I suppose the one I gave the lowest score to. Well, two of them I gave five and. Um, under cover of darkness for me is probably my low point. Okay. It's just just pick, just trumps Elvis. No, Elvis Elvis manages to get onto the scoreboard as the lowest scoring um, track on the album for me. Um, so that's my low, my high. It's tight every day of the week, really. But I think there are a couple of tracks on there that push it quite close. Yeah, for me, Elvis. I think it does get the lowest of the of the scores. I'm going to have to, you're going to make me pick one again, aren't you? Okay. Desert Island. I, I would take solace of you yeah. to a desert island. There we go. Uh, our three albums in this episode 39 of the Sad Men podcast, exploring the world of colours. So now it comes to the point where we must score these three albums track by track to see where they will end up in our Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initializing reading process. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Three three really different albums, but far more than three very different opinions. And um, unsurprisingly, the scores are kind of all over the place. And uh, we better show you the numbers that we've attached to the tracks that we've been playing over the last week. So the first of the three albums, Mark, was uh, Thin Lizzy's Black Rose from 1979. How did that stack up? Uh, well, um, it stacked up well, but the scores were, well, we didn't really get anywhere close to each other, did we? Um, not even, I think, on on uh, the tracks. Then the closest we got to in terms of track scores was we, we broadly were relatively close with S&M, but the rest of them were all over the shop. So... Um, Steve, you gave it seven point all the threes. Uh, Richard, you gave it seven point nine five, uh, and I, unsurprisingly, 
Um, I think it's a great album. I gave it 8.4 for an average album score of 7.90370. Um, Steve, okay. you did Fashion by Passion next. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. And, um, yeah, you and I pretty much joined at the hip on this one, but uh, Richard liked it less. That's all we'll say. I gave it 7.1 and lots more ones. You gave it 7.1 and plenty of threes. And Richard gave it 6.4. A man with AOR in his soul, I thought, but not this one, not this not this beast, um, for an overall score of 6.89. And, I, and I've not looked ahead at the Hall of Fame, but I fancy that's in trouble. Um, and the third and final album we did uh, on this episode was, yeah, Time's Up, Living Colour. Richard, do you want to talk us through the numbers? Yes, a bit of a reverse where, Steve, you were a little bit adrift of Mark and I. We were Mark and I were fairly similar, um, giving it there or thereabouts a seven and a half each. Uh, Steve, you weren't quite as high as that, but still gave it a 6.87. And that gave Time's Up by Living Colour an overall total of 7.297 and a bit. So there we go. There we go. So we've got a 7.29, a 6.89 and a 7.9. Let's head over to the Hall of Fame and see where that puts them. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Right. So here we are in our wonderful, hallowed Hall of Fame. 117 albums now grace these walls. And what's noticeable is that the list of albums that are outside of 100 is getting quite long now. That said, for now, all three of our albums reviewed in this episode uh, have made their way into the 100, uh, and they are positioned as follows. Or Fashion by Passion by White Sister is in the 100, but only just. They come in at number 98, one place above Sad Wings of Destiny by Judas Priest, and one below, Long Cold Winter by Cinderella. And next up, uh, about 30 or so above them, Time's Up by Living Colour has come into our Hall of Fame at number 75, uh, a place above Dio's Holy Diver, and one below Marseille's Touch the Night. But the winner of this episode uh, is very easily... Thin Lizzie's Black Rose, which climbs into our top 30 at number 28. And they are sandwiched between two other classics, Rising by Rainbow and Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. What do you think of that, boys? Well, I mean, first things first, we need to start listening to some Wasp. I can't believe we've done one Wasp album and they've dropped out straight away. They're into uh, they're into three figures. Scandal. We need to get Wasp or The Last Command on it and right some wrongs. <laughs> get them in the top 30 where they need to be. Um, yeah, well, fashion by passion isn't long for this world, I don't think, at 98 and no surprise there. Time's up at 75, Living Colour. I guess that's what happens with an album that kind of confuses. I'm surprised. I thought it might be a little bit lower. And Thin Lizzy, I know you boys love Thin Lizzy. I do know you love Thin Lizzy. And, I, and my score suggested I liked it, and I do. I'm just not quite um, as obsessive about it as you are, and therefore it falls you know, some way short of Thunder and Lightning, which we all loved. I would imagine there's two or three more Thin Lizzy albums that will um, feature quite highly as well, I would suggest. Yeah, I think, uh, I think so. I mean, the, the reality of this, of course, is, to get into the top 30, it's got a pretty good album, isn't it? Because when you look at 
you know, the, the albums that have fallen out of the top hundred now, you know, they, I mean, there, there, there is some, there's some dross in there without a shadow of a doubt, but, and, and I wouldn't say any of them deserve to be in the top hundred. If you look just above that, the 10 that are kind of sitting over the trap door, um, there are some pretty good albums in there. Die of a Madman, Paranoid, um, Sad Wings, Destiny, arguably. You know, we're, we're now in a position where you've got to be, in order to, to, to get a place in the top 100, you've got to be scoring above 6.9, really. Um, so that that's that kind of speaks to the calibre of stuff that's in there now. And, yeah, we, you're right, Steve, we've got to get some more Wasp on. Whatever Tico comes up with this week. <laughs> I might just make all of the numbers insects. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. I enjoyed that week. That was um, I really enjoyed it. it. Was it was nice to have? You know, we, we've had a couple of weeks where the, the the albums we've been listening to have been fairly similar, haven't we? And um, it was quite nice in terms of quality. And it was quite nice just to hear something a bit different this week. And you know, with eighties sort of synthesizers and a bit of 1970s late 1970s rock and then you know something just completely out of left field with you know living color color yeah good week a good week can't wait to see what tico throws up next there'll be loads more goodies to come on uh, on enter sad men and we'll uh, certainly three more next week that's for certain yeah as the voice said that's been a blast that was episode 39 a beautifully varied <laughs> trio of albums that we've enjoyed listening to we've enjoyed reviewing we've enjoyed nattering around and we've enjoyed scoring and uh, slotting into our hall of fame and we'll do it all again next time and uh, hopefully we'll have your company when we do until then cheers all music clips featured in the enter sad men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of uk and international copyright law To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service. 